Welcome to Outside the Box, a mental health initiative striving to end the stigma surrounding mental health. On this week's episode of Outside the Box, I'm in conversation with artist, activist, SMU professor, and curious dreamer, Willie Baronet. Willie is currently the Stan Richards Professor of Creative Advertising at SMU's Temerlin Advertising Institute, where he teaches classes related to creativity and portfolio development. And I actually had him on my other show, uh, and I got a chance to watch his documentary. So I'm so happy to have you on Outside the Box. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you again. I have told so many people about you um, because you you really inspired me personally to be more aware and awake in the world. So for instance, I started doing something in the pandemic, which I would definitely say you inspired me where I might've told you um, it had to do with excess food at a local donut shop and they were dumping it every day. And long story short is I agreed to come after hours and pick up a ton of donuts um, because I was asked to take them to people that are experiencing homelessness. And there's only one answer. Yes, of course. Absolutely. When do you want me there? So I started doing it four or five days a week, and now we're doing it with bagels. But your work really shifted my thinking less on me to what's the bigger mm. picture. You did send me, I think you wrote a blog post about that. Uh, and donut. I remember Donut being in the title of the blog post. Yes. And... I was very touched by that. I, you know, as you know, I've been doing this work for a long time. I don't always know the ripples uh, of the work. And one of the things I share with my students is about trust your gut when you have a strange idea, follow it, because you don't know the impact you might have. So I love hearing an actual concrete ripple Um from a conversation or whatever, it could be from somebody at an exhibit or seeing the documentary. But um, yeah, I was really touched by that. And, um, you know, I felt from the moment you and I met, you're, we're of fairly like minds. So I didn't, wasn't surprised. I'll say that. Well, I, and I'm glad I shared that with you. Uh, you know, and even, even a small act of you see someone standing on a street corner with a sign, which again, made me think of you. And I, and I rolled down my window one day because I was returning some food. And I said, are you hungry? And this woman said, absolutely. And I just stopped my car and gave her the bread I was going to return and the water and the fruit. And, and it's like, just do any small act of kindness. How, how did you uh, decide to do the project, which led to the documentary? Um, you mean by signs? Yes. In the first yes. What inspired you to do that? Well, that started 30 years ago. And honestly, all I remember is that I noticed people holding signs and I noticed that I myself was finding ways to avert my eyes and not see them and deliberately uh, turn away. And I hated the way that felt. And the idea uh, popped out of wherever ideas pop out of. And uh, I started buying signs. And literally from the very beginning, I realized I don't know that I'm ever going to stop this because it was so, so much more, um, it just felt so much better to engage in that way. And truthfully, 
I love the signs, as you know. Um, yes. I, I literally bought four signs in New York two weeks ago, and I bought two signs in Dallas in the past few days. So it is a never-ending thing for me, but I absolutely love how it feels to mm -hmm. engage and to shake their hands and exchange our names and really just seeing the humanity in each other. And it's not just about you buying a sign. It's it's you having a conversation because a lot of times no one speaks to them. Am I right? Oh, many of them have told me how long it, you know, time, a lot of time goes by uh, before people actually speak to them. I had one man tell me, a man in Austin, Texas told me that it had been three years since someone asked his name. Oh, that is awful. I know. I know. Are you seeing uh, more people experiencing homelessness because of the, or it, because of COVID and the whole pandemic? Yes, for sure. In Dallas, in New York, in cities that I've traveled to, I've noticed um, an increase. And um, I saw one article that said that the impact of homeless of COVID on homelessness was in the U.S. was projected to be forty-five percent that it was going to go up by 45%. And most people that I know around the country have shared that it appears to have increased in their community. I would say so. You know, I feel like I'm seeing more and more people holding up signs or pushing shopping carts with all of their belongings. And it's, it's awful. I mean, everybody has a backstory. It's, you know, I've even met a young girl who said her brother was experiencing homelessness. He was in his 20s. She knows where he is, but, you know, it was something that the whole family was going through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is one of the many things I've learned doing this project is that everybody does have a story and those stories are unique. They may share some common themes with others, but it's so easy to imagine everybody's, you know, on the street for the same reason. And that's just not the case. Right. So I want to back way up. Okay. I asked you before we started, what was Willie like when he was little? So um, here's what I, what comes up immediately when you ask me that question. First of all, I'm the oldest of eight. Oh. I grew up in a large Cajun, very Catholic family in South Louisiana. And I grew up not really realizing how little money we had. Um, my dad, I don't think ever made over $30,000 a year uh, raising eight kids. And you know, one of the good things about being Cajun, my mom was able to cook for lots of people. She was a good cook. And so I also grew up eating really great food. But I think one of the defining parts about my childhood was that my dad was physically abusive, um, also emotionally abusive, but he was uh, terrifying and scared all of us as children and my mom. And that shaped a lot of the way I was as a youngster. Um, I grew up afraid. I grew up uh, hyper alert for signals that he might fly into a rage. And 
I didn't really unpack most of that till I began therapy much later in my life as an adult. And it was, um, it's been an amazing journey for me because my dad and I have done a lot of healing. Um, literally two days ago, I drove down to South Louisiana because he's really in poor health and, um, they weren't even sure he was going to leave the hospital, oh. uh, but he's at home right now on oxygen. And in any case, it was worth it to me to make this trip and spend some time with him. But it was a long journey in my adulthood that uh, led to us getting some closure around some of that, at least for me, getting mm -hmm. some of that. And in some ways, I believe I gave my dad an opportunity to open up in a way that he had never done before. Uh, we exchanged what I call the come to Jesus letters uh, back in 1993. Okay. Coincidentally, the same year I bought my first homeless sign, which I've often wondered if there was a connection uh, there. But um, he wrote me back a few months afterwards. It, there was some silence in between, and I was terrified about what I had done uh, because I was confronting him for the first time in my adult life. And mm -hmm. um, his letter back to me, which was very honest, and I'm still amazed to this day that he took the time to write that. It was five pages long. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, which I'd be happy to share the text of it with you if that's of interest. Sure. I have actually shared it with a number of men in my life um, who have struggled with dad issues. Um, but that letter to me is probably my most prized possession. And the journey with my dad is probably the single thing I'm most proud of, of all the things I've ever accomplished, that one is the one that was the, the scariest and also um, the one I'm most grateful to have to have done. And it, it did require, I, I look back now, I realize I had more courage than I thought I did, but it was a, it was a very, very important part of my development. And wow. so, so to the extent that that was a big part of my childhood, um, I would also say I, you know, had a bunch of brothers and sisters and that comes with a lot of, you know, chaos and fun. And sure. uh, we were an athletic family. So I grew up playing sports. Um, I look back now at the fact that I used to draw from a very early age. It was one of the things that I was naturally fairly good at. And I think about it now and realize it was probably also an escape for me that there was um, there was a lot about drawing that soothed me, um, mm -hmm. which I don't think I realized at the time. But I got I also got a lot of praise for it, especially from my mom. It's great. She I did a drawing of Snoopy when I was seven years old that she kept in her purse till I was in my 20s. Cute. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And it was like, mom, get over it already. You know? right. But, um, but I did, I got, I got some feed, some positive feedback, even though my parents were not, they didn't draw, they didn't, to my knowledge, I wasn't sure either of them had ever been in a museum ever. Well, uh, yeah. And 
it's so odd because now when I travel anywhere, the first place I go is usually to museums or to look at street art or mm -hmm. galleries or whatever. So for me, it's such a big piece of my life. And I now teach classes in creativity, which is about trying to get my students to open up and to yes. uh, continue to take risks and fail and try things and stay curious and all of that. So um, did I answer the early childhood? Oh, you thing? did. You did. You know what? <laughs> I, I love that you're, you, you frame this sharing your, your story of when you were younger, because you see the power and the, um, you know, how creativity can spill over from youth to adulthood. Mm -hmm. And as we get older, especially for college students, you know, they're busy, they have all this stuff going on, but also spending time just doodling is so good for your mental health. Right. Certainly. It certainly was for me. And I, I it's funny because I am also I save stuff, you know, so I have boxes of old uh, drawings. And and one of the things that I did um, in elementary school and high school, I doodled all the time during class. So the margins of my notebooks were filled <laughs> with doodles. And one of the drawing classes that I took when I got into college and it's funny, I got to back up. I didn't take my first art class until I was almost in my junior year of college. I really? started as a pre-law major. Um, a couple of semesters in, uh, was in a law library one summer, realized this didn't seem like something I wanted to do. And then I changed my major to math because I happened to have, at the time have a professor who I found really inspiring. And the math class was um, interesting to me. And I had a pretty good aptitude in math. So I did that for a couple of semesters. And then I kind of wondered, what the hell am I doing? Right. Found advertising design. And it was like the clouds parted. And I knew that's where I was supposed to be. Yeah. And so one of my first drawing classes of my life, uh, we had to do a semester long project. And so I decided I was going to find all of my doodles from childhood, cut them all out, put them in a sketchbook. My professor went apeshit about wow. that. He loved it um, and loved the fact that I'd saved all these things. You bet. But, but I also noticed there were themes to the doodles. And I noticed that um, a lot of questions I probably still have originated in some of those doodles. So what kind of themes? Um, death. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's not good for a young kid. I don't know why, but okay. uh, no superheroes I, or um, not really. I mean, I drew there were occasional cars and geometric shapes and mm -hmm. flowers and clouds, lots of crying eyes, which became something I to this day still draw lots of eyes with tears, which has just been a I still draw and still have sketchbooks. So mm -hmm. and it's still a way that I process things. And that's just one of the uh, kind of icons that shows up a lot in sketches. Um, but yeah, it was it doodling for me is fascinating. I wish I was a psychologist and could understand more of what all is going on in the structure of, you know, do I draw sharp objects versus curvy, smooth objects? And, yes. you know, does any of that mean something? Yeah. Well, and also when you, as a, as a teacher, when you tell a student there are no wrong answers, 
I, I had a teacher tell that to me and she was a creative writing teacher. I kind of looked at her like, really? I mean, I'm so used to grades and bombing classes left and right. There's no wrong answer. Then there's a, this level of like just relief and you can just be you. Yeah. One of the things that comes up obviously in intro to creativity, which is a big survey class that I teach. Um, I let them know early on everything about creativity, uh, uh, certainly in evaluating it for the most part is subjective. Mm. Yes. You can measure things in terms of advertising responses and so forth, but the kinds of judgments that I'm going to make about your creative work is subjective. And I own that from the get-go. So I want you to know I take it seriously. And I also am aware that my opinion might be different from yours and that's okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I love about the creative side of advertising. There, there is a lot about it that is gut feeling and instinct and art. And there are parts of it that are, really going to be at the judgment of somebody who is in that position to make the decision about we're going to go with this type of illustration or this concept or whatever. Yeah. Now we are in an age where we can test things. So True. it's easy to test things that doesn't necessarily tell you something's better or not, but. True. True. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the story? I grew up on the East coast and I lived in Manhattan and I remember I didn't spend a lot of time with my dad, but I started seeing him when I was about 14 after not seeing him for years. And he took me to an advertising agency. He had a colleague, a friend of his that worked at this agency in Manhattan. And there was, did I tell you about the poster on the wall? Okay. No. So, And do you remember the agency? I don't remember. Okay. But the, the, the ad on the wall, I guess it was award-winning ad. It was a print ad. Uh, was for a, um, some high-end hat company. And they said the only hat, the only head that doesn't look good in our hats. And it was a iceberg head of lettuce. <laughs> and the others were people. And and it, I never forgot that. I thought that is so clever. <laughs> and it was probably, you know, Mad Men in the golden age of advertising in the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a famous print campaign for Volkswagen, which was done by a big agency called Doyle, Dane, Bernbach. And that time period is really the birth of what we consider modern advertising in terms of a strong concept where the words and the pictures go together in a way that before that, it really didn't happen. And it is, I'm, I love great ads, even the great vintage ads. And sure. it is something that now, of course, we're in a time where we could argue that sometimes uh, the things that are succeeding now are a little bit more outrageous or right. nonsensical, but memorable for different reasons. True. But uh, yeah, advertising is to me, I mean, what is a better culture? bellwether than advertising you know right. it's yes. in our faces all the time all the time I mean I love watching commercials I have a family member that can't stand them she shuts off the volume um but I'm, I'm like put that back on because even like a Super Bowl I'm not a big football person but I just study the commercials 
you know, you can tell what touches you, what's awful, everything. We watch them in class. And then we talk about what, why, what did you like? Why did you like it? What resonated? What do you think the creative brief might've said? What do you think, what's the problem that you think they were attempting to solve? What are the brand characteristics? What do you take away from the ad as a key message? All those sorts of things, which most of us don't consciously pick apart. That's literally what we do in class. That's and great. of course, in my upper level classes in portfolio and advanced portfolio, we're literally having those students create their own campaigns. And we want them to think about the level of creativity that they see in some of the good Super Bowl ads. That's the that's the bar we're trying to set for them. I love that. Do you have you seen a um a shift in student participation or their willingness to talk about mental health? Have you seen students struggling with mental health over the past few years because of COVID? Certainly. Um the online teaching uh shit show uh is what i'll call it sure. <laughs> was challenging for everyone and mm -hmm. i certainly didn't like it as a, a professor because for me it's very difficult to gauge feedback and you know everybody's sound is off and if i tell a joke it's hard to know whether anybody's laughing you know all that sort of thing were their cameras off most of the time or did you ask them to put them on we asked but couldn't require them to have cameras on. So there yeah. were a fair number. And depending on the class, there might be a larger percentage of cameras on. But even like in my survey class, it, there were 90 students in the class. So they were like, I, I could only look at 25 people at once anyway. So mm -hmm. the what I noticed is that it did take a toll on a lot of the students. And of course, some of those students that are graduating now experienced a couple of years of COVID during their college life. And yes, I started to get more requests at the beginning of the semester from our uh, office that is really focused on mental health and learning, um, varied learning abilities and so forth. I would get more requests from students at the beginning of the semester, which is an indication that more students are acknowledging, hey, I've I need a longer time to take a test or whatever mm -hmm. that might be. Sure. So I've noticed that. I noticed there was at least for some students appear to be some communication struggles that talking in person, it, it's almost like they had to get back into that groove. Right. Um I I don't know that I had more people crying in my office than usual. There's always people, you know, that um, I like to think it's safe enough spot that people feel like they can open up and, mm -hmm. and sometimes share things have nothing to do with class. But um, I, I did notice that there was, I think, more conversation about mental health in general on campus and among students. Um, I think there were some professors that were more empathetic in mm -hmm. in in the way that was handled. Um, others, I don't think, really wanted to be bothered. And so I noticed, I, I, I do think it had a pretty big impact. Yes. Um, now, it may have made some students more adept at working online. It may have also 
honed some different skills. Um, but, but to your question, yes, definitely more emphasis on that, um, that I noticed. And I'm seeing also that, as you said, there, there's a level of discomfort being back in person that now that they were remote, some prefer being back home, uh, you know, remote and it's awkward. They have to relearn communication skills, gain some confidence, gain friends. It's definitely, you know, affected them in a lot of different ways. Yeah. True. And no question, although even students that I remember when we were all on Zoom, they would be laying in their bed, literally, Yeah. Um, told me once we were back in person, how much more they preferred it to be in person, because it really just forced them to get engaged and yeah. to show, show up. up. Yeah, <laughs> it's and we all know that's a big part of things is just showing you bet. up. You bet. Do you often think how your childhood and all the things you had to deal with, uh, like, I know I think about this for me, like, I'm actually grateful for all the personal struggles. And I had a tumultuous relationship with my own mother. But I think, you know what, it, it made me who I am, all of the adversity, because what if you hadn't gone through all that? What if you hadn't leaned into your creative side and drawing. I mean, what would you be doing? Would you be a lawyer? I couldn't imagine it. <laughs> I have, well, it's impossible for me to know where I'm, how things would have been different. Sure. I, I will say, I, I do think about, there's no question that it, it shapes so much of who I am. And I think for most people, it shapes how we are in the world on the positive side, when I think about my hyper uh, alertness and being hyper vigilant about how other people are feeling, there's no question that made me a better communicator, a better listener. It made me able to read the room uh, early in my life. And mm -hmm. as it, when I owned an ad agency, it probably helped me read clients and learn how to sell and how to get them to trust us. And so there are a lot of things about that shaping that I'm grateful for. I, I do think that was huge. I would say, you know, my dad, for all of his faults, also had a really amazing work ethic. He was He was up at the crack of dawn and at the office really early. I think I learned a lot of that from him as well. And that's been, for me, a positive thing. I will outwork anybody, you mm -hmm. know, I don't care who it is. I will outwork you, you know, I may not right. outthink you, but yeah. I'll at least outwork you. Um, and there was an element of that that I am grateful for. On the other side, when I see students, especially some of my current students who have would appear to be the most supportive, amazing parents ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, their parents clearly crazy encouraging and in not just encouraging, but also try everything and indulging their students' um, failures. And just, it was stunning to me to meet some of these parents and realize 
And and so so I, then I think, what would it have been like had someone been able to encourage me like that when I was young around drawing or art or creativity and really nurtured that in a way that I didn't get? You know, my parents, yeah. like I said, I got some praise for my ability to draw, but it was not the kind of thing that they were never going to encourage me to go take an art class or anything like that. And there generally just wasn't a big level of engagement. Now, my dad was interested as long as I was playing sports and excelling at sports. He cared about that. Right. And so I do wonder about that because I, I see people in my age and at any age, really, who seem to have come from those families that were wildly supportive. And I was like, boy, what must that be like to have that right. level of confidence early on? I feel yes. like I've had to learn some of that myself as an adult. And I've had to parent myself in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and surround myself with other mentors and people over the years. Yeah. And, and so anyway, that is, that's the flip side of it. And of course, I wonder if, um, if I wasn't so afraid in my early adulthood, what might I have tried or how big might I, I have thought, you know, because I was taught very clearly to play small. That was one wow. of the messages that I took away from childhood Yeah, is who the fuck do you think you are mm -hmm. and sit in the corner and you'll speak when you're spoken to. Those are the yeah. kinds of messages that were uh, they were certainly said, but they, I felt them yes. very clearly. So playing small, staying in my lane, all of those things were part of my training. So it must feel very freeing to not be around that because look at the life you have created. Well, I do. I feel very blessed and I have a, you know, I, I feel like I have two jobs, you know, I, I'm a professor, which is like my paying job. And then I, I, do these art exhibits and all of this work around the We Are All Homeless project, which is, um, they're both so rewarding and they're both so focused on creativity, which is mind boggling to me when I think about the fact that this is where I ended up. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for that. I often now, am, I realize a lot of times I'm telling my students, you're the one who's supposed to be scaring me. I feel like I'm the one scaring you. I want you to scare me. I want you to try some crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so in our one-on-one -on -one sessions or two-on-one, -on -one, it's often they work in teams. Um, I find like I'm the one telling them, well, what if you did? And and they're, I can see their heads like, oh my God, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. And so a big part of what I feel like my job is, is to keep them, you know, crazy think crazy, crazy open Way, crazy yes. open to the possibilities yeah and and let me pull you back i will tell you if yeah. it's too far. and right. i'll tell you there's no way that's going to work yeah but i want you to scare me with your ideas and love when it. a student does that ugh, it's so rewarding i love it because it takes you by surprise that's and that's what this is all about it's just captivating your audience getting their attention Indeed. Well, on the advertising side, the other side, which occasionally I get blown away too, and I'm thinking in particular of this was several years ago. Um, you know, I talk about the homeless project sometimes. I will bring signs to class, 
Mm-hmm. But I I never, you know, and it's sometimes I just think students are like rolling their eyes. I, it's hard to tell if they're engaged. And I remember several years ago, I had a student who was French. He was from Paris and had very thick French accent. And he did hardly ever talked in class. He was a graphic designer, very good designer. And but one of those people that I would have thought he is uh, half of what I'm saying is like not landing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the semester after I had him in class, I hear a knock at my door, my office door, and he's at the door and his parents were visiting and he they he had told them about the sign project. They bought a sign in Paris that was in French oh. and he gave me the sign and wow. I was like, that's wow. probably the first time that I was like, I should never trust my gut about who's getting it or not. Right. Since then, you know, I taught in London about three years ago and I had a student in my class. Again, she was very quiet and I I make them all do a blog during the course of the semester. And her last blog post was titled, what would Willie do? And it was a recap of the impact of the semester and it brought me to tears. It was um, just, it blew me away. And again, I would have thought, ah, she's not getting any of this. And so I've now, I realize I can't assume that someone's no. not listening. No. Um, I had a, even last summer in London, this, there was only one guy on the whole program. It's almost always if more women than men. And I mean, when I say more, it's like 39 women, one guy. And this one guy was in my class. He, an engineering student, you know, he's taking this to tick off the creativity box. Before the semester was over, he had bought and brought to class three different signs for me. And one of them was on a clipboard. The only what? sign I own to this day that's on a wooden clipboard. And so every time he'd bring it, to, he was so excited too, to yeah. engage and to um, be a part of it. So yeah, now I just, I just go with it and I trust, okay, somebody's going to hear it and I'm going to yeah. just, I'm going to talk as if everybody's going to hear it. Well, because you don't realize, just like I started this conversation telling you how the donut story and all that, but you don't realize, Willie, that the oppression that you're making is beyond the class that you might be teaching. You're making these lifelong um, mindset changes, and and I call it becoming a better human, and you're teaching them acts of kindness and empathy and compassion and being open to their surroundings, and it's beautiful. What what oh, a fulfilling, you. rewarding, you know, message to get back. It is, it is. And, um, and I, you know, some of it, like I say, I notice and I can see, it's just, I'm, I'm constantly surprised by the ones I can't see. Um, but the same thing happens, you know, if I'm, I have an exhibit up right now at the um, Utah Museum of Contemporary Art in Salt Lake City. And it is so rewarding to be at an exhibit and to hear feedback in real time or to get, to see an article about the exhibit and where they talk about the impact the project has you know on a complete stranger you know that right. I'm not even talking to so it is like I said this is I feel so grateful to have 
these two jobs, and I should put air quotes around the jobs because <laughs> feel like jobs, except when I'm grading. Grading is the worst. That's a job in itself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but everything else about the creative side of things is it's so fun and so rewarding. And I've mm -hmm. done it for so long too that I know I've got an aptitude for it. So it it's just uh it's a it's a fun way to to make a living. You bet. Well and the big picture is you are impacting mental health. You're impacting mental health of perhaps that student. Let's say they're having a terrible day. They're, they've been depressed. And all of a sudden, they see someone experiencing homelessness holding the sign. And they're in another country. And they have made this human connection. They perhaps might not be thinking about that personal thing they were struggling with for that moment. And then they're thinking of you, they're thinking of that person, they're excited to come back and show you the sign. I mean, it is on the bigger scale, it is something that's so powerful. Yeah. Well, as you know, I, I agree with you. And, and as you know, gratitude is one, if there is a single thing that is a good recipe to kind of shake up my mental state or to wake me up, to get me present, gratitude is one of those and I'm often asked, you know, what are the big things you've taken away from this project? You've been doing this for 30 years. What have you learned? And one of the things is about the stories, like I talked about earlier. The other thing that I almost always mention, which is so true, is that doing this all the time, just being focused on, I mean, I don't drive down the street when I'm not looking for somebody on the corner because it's just a part of my routine. And doing that all of the time makes me so grounded in gratitude. It's like anytime I'm about to complain about something, food's not hot enough, but Wi-Fi speed is too slow, whatever the hell it is, mm -hmm. I got too much to do. I am almost instantly reminded of the folks I buy signs from and how uh, I'm just, I'm grateful for that. And it keeps me grateful about all the stuff in my life, my my network of friends and family and people. I mean, no matter how bad things get, I know there's somebody with a sofa that would let me sleep on it. Sure. So I just genuinely don't fear for not having food to eat or a place to sleep, any of mm -hmm. that, any of the basic kinds of things. So right. yeah, gratitude's huge. Definitely. Where can people see your film? It's at Amazon Prime? Amazon Prime. Uh, it's called Signs of Humanity. Um, we're literally in the process of trying to figure out how to pitch a TV series to follow up on that because it would be so easy and and I think uh, relevant to do an episodic thing where we, every episode is a different city and we you know, do some deep dives from people that we would uh, meet and buy signs from and hear their stories and then maybe yeah. talk to hometown heroes about what is it they're doing in Detroit or in Cleveland or whatever city it might be. Mm -hmm. um, how are how are how are you dealing with this? How is the city dealing with it? Because there are a lot of really good ideas happening around the country. Some bad ones, too, but a lot of good ones. And good. Um, we all need to, to be exposed to all the creative compassion out there. You bet. So. Well, keep me posted because I'd love to, you know, 
keep tabs on what you're doing. And uh, it's so important what you're doing. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you? Well, we have a website, weareallhomeless.org. Um, I've got a page on the SMU website uh, as a professor that has a lot of information there. Uh, um, I'm on all the social media as Willie Baronet, and um, I post, I also have a We Are All Homeless Instagram page as well, where I post lots of signs as I buy them. I've got a stack that I need to post. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm easy to find, and um, I love to engage with people about their own stories or the impact of the project or whatever. Fantastic. I want to thank you so much. I always love talking to you, but this conversation was especially wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the work you do, too. I love that you are making better humans out there. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of Outside the Box. We're spreading knowledge and compassion through podcasts, social events, and resources. Outside the Box is committed to facilitating real conversations about real issues that people struggle with every day. I hope my movement will not only inspire you to seek the help you need, but also help you learn the importance of self-awareness, mindfulness, and self-compassion. Want to be a guest on Outside the Box? Drop us an email at info at otbseries.com. We drop a new episode every Thursday. And you can check out our socials at OTB Series. For more information, visit otbseries.com. 